0: Well, good morning, everyone. In honor of football season starting soon, I can't get here soon enough, I figured it would be fitting this morning to start off by talking for just a minute about one of pro football's top running backs. According to NFL senior analyst Gil Brandt, so this isn't just my opinion, this guy knows what he's talking about, senior analyst, he says that Barry Sanders, who ran for the Detroit Lions, is without doubt one of the top 10 running backs in NFL history. Sanders ran for over 15,000 total career yards while he was running for the Lions. He was an NFL MVP, and then for each of his seasons in the NFL, he was invited to the Pro Bowl. So so all of that, if you're not a football fan, all of that just means that he's a good football player. But when I think of Barry Sanders, because he was running while I was in middle school and uh, high school and stuff like that, so I'd watch him play on TV or uh, the video games I would play would have him in it so you kind of remember kind of how he would run. When I think of Barry Sanders, I don't think of these numbers in the stat sheet. When I think of Barry Sanders, the one thing that comes to my mind is him dodging and evading tackles, of, of making defenders miss. He was actually ranked by one NFL group as the most elusive player in NFL history. See, there, there are times when Barry Sanders was running down the field, and you see this other defender just running at him, and people who, who don't like to see big hits are kind of getting ready to cringe. Other people are getting ready to, like, stand and cheer on a great hit. But just before this collision happens, Sanders would plant a foot, dodge to the side, a little bit quicker than I just did right there, but, but, but he, would, he would do that. He would, he would dodge to the side, and he'd make the defender miss, and then he'd keep running down the field. You see, when we see running back to do this today, commentators on, on TV still compare them to Barry Sanders. He's the standard. He could turn on a dime. And this sort of course correction, this sort of turning on a dime is exactly what we see David doing in 1 Samuel 25 as we continue this series we've been in on David's life. And as we look at one of the most significant figures in the Bible, this man who's called a man after God's own heart. And so David is someone we're going to learn all that we can from today. And so we'll get into the specifics of the story in just a minute. But let me fill you in now on what we're going to see. We're, we're going to see David come into this collision course with this guy we're going to meet named Nabal. And then right before this collision happens, right before we're getting ready to cringe because we, we just see collateral damage, Right before that happens, we see David change course. We see David turn on his dime and do something different. In this chapter, we see David starting out wanting to do one thing, but then by the end of the chapter, he is doing the complete opposite. He's doing something very different. David changes his mind. David changes his attitude. David changes his trajectory. And so what we're talking about today is change. And as we see David change, we can't help but take a look at ourselves and ask ourselves the right question to ask. If David can change like that when he needs to, how can I change when I need to? How will I respond when I see something in my life? Maybe I see it myself. Maybe somebody else shows it to me. But how will I respond when I see something in myself that needs to change? And this is an important question. Because we all need to change, every one of us here. We all need to change, maybe in little ways, maybe in big ways. But hopefully in two weeks or two months or two years, we all look different than we do right now. And I'm not just talking primarily about changing a job or moving locations to a different city, nothing like that. What I'm talking about is this. At Brookside, we believe that Jesus is in the process of changing lives. And we believe that Jesus is calling. He's he's inviting people to enter into this, best of all, life-giving, full relationship with himself. And then as we trust in Jesus, as we choose to follow him, the Bible says our identity does change. We become sons and daughters of God. But then we spend a lifetime living into that, leaning into that change that God has brought about for us. And so we spend a lifetime correcting course with with, with these two-degree changes and sometimes with these 180-degree changes to bring ourselves in alignment with Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. Following Jesus just kind of assumes that over the course of time we'll continue to see things in us and about us that have to change and so we need to change but we all know that change is so difficult and I'll be the first to raise my hand and say I don't like change I'm the guy that like when I go to a restaurant and I find a meal that I like I ride that thing even after it stops it's tasting good you know I mean I go to Jason's Deli it's like right across the street so I'm there meeting people all the time I know when I'm going to get there. I've been ordering the same thing for probably six years. California Club, blue chips and salsa, pomegranate drink, you know. You tell me a restaurant I visit semi-regularly, I will tell you the thing I'm going to order from that restaurant. Because I find it, I stick with it, because it's right, you know. Because it's good, because I don't like change. None of us like change. But we all need to change. And so this question is for all of us. How will I respond when I need to change? The value of asking this question is so big, because if we don't respond to change when we need to, change in us, change about us, we can leave this wake of collateral damage in our midst, that that's hurtful to others, but it's hurtful to us too. But, but if we can learn how to, how to be nimble enough, to change well, when we need to change, to respond, to change with teachability, to embrace it, we will grow faster and further towards Jesus in all the right ways so Jesus will be able to use us, work in us and around us and through us in all the ways he wants to. So how will I respond? How will you respond when it's time to change? Change. Keep that question in the back of your minds as we now get into 1 Samuel chapter 25 and as we, as we read about this situation that David puts himself in. See how he changes course when he needs to. So 1 Samuel chapter 25, right away in the first few verses we meet the three primary players that we're going to keep running into over the course of this chapter. Verse 1, now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him at his home in Ramah. And then David moved down into the desert of Paran. And so David, he's the first primary player. We learn that Samuel, one of David's closest allies, has died. And then just to give you a little bit of context, a little bit of perspective, just by way of reminder, David right here in in these chapters in 1 Samuel is on the run from King Saul. You see, David has been anointed king, but he hasn't yet been appointed king. And so David's on the run with a few hundred men who kind of formed this army around him. And King Saul is on this murderous rampage, this jealous manhunt for David's life. So David is the first player. Verses 2 and 3 we meet. The next two people we'll be seeing in chapter 25. Verse 2, a certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his business dealings. He was a Calebite. And so so Nabal is really wealthy. When when you read about those thousands of livestock, the goats and the sheep, you should read dollar signs. It's just, just what it meant back then. So Nabal is loaded, but he's a jerk, right? His name the word in Hebrew, Nabal, which is what, the, what 1 Samuel is written in, Nabal means fool. So, so, so his name means fool, and as it says, he's surly and mean in his business dealing. So, so if I just summarize Nabal in just a few words, I'd call him a powerful jerk. I mean, he, he, he's a bully. He's loaded, but he's not nice at all. His wife, Abigail, couldn't be more different She's described as intelligent and beautiful. And as the story plays out, we're going to keep learning new things about who Abigail is. We're going to see her wisdom, her courage, her insight, and her leadership. And so when you put a strong leader like David with all the stresses that Shirley is experiencing, just lost one of his closest allies to death. He's, He's been on the run probably for years from Saul. When you put all these all these stresses into a strong leader like David and then put him in the same vicinity with someone like Nabal with a powerful jerk, we know we're just sitting on a volcano that is getting ready to erupt. It's no surprise that as we read these first few verses, we think there's a collision coming. We see one, we see one runner running on the field this way, a defender coming this way. We're just getting ready to cringe. When we see David and Nabal described in this way in the story, we we can guess that's where this is going. So stay with me while we see how this takes shape. So David and these 600 men with him, they're camping out in the wilderness near Nabal's property. And, And while they're there, this army basically provides an informal security detail for Nabal's shepherds and his flocks. This wouldn't have been uncommon back then, Because there wasn't this great infrastructure with developed police forces, things like that. When you lived in one community, you helped make sure that everyone else living in that community, it went went well for them. I mean, just think neighborhood watch program, and you get this at least glimpse of of what David and his men were doing for Nabal and his flocks. And, And one of Nabal's servants actually describes what David and his men were doing in verse 15. Speaking about David and his men, he says, these men were very good to us. They didn't mistreat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. So this is what David and his men are doing. Night and day, they were a wall around us the whole time that we were herding our sheep near them. So, so David is providing a valuable service. He, he, he's good for Nabal and his flocks. And so with that in mind, Let's keep reading in verse 4. Pick up the story there. And so while David was in the wilderness doing everything we just saw him doing, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. Now shearing sheep time was basically payday, right? It was bonus time. When you started to see the, the, the product of everything you'd been working for leading up to it. So, so it's part work, but it's bonus time. It's, so, so it's part party as well. It's a festival, and so given the, the size of Nabal's flocks, it's probably a big party as well. Verse 5, so, so, so David sends 10 young men and said to them, go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, long life to you. Good health to you and your household. Good health to all that is yours. So three times here we see David wishing Nabal well. He's just pouring, gushing, blessing on Nabal here. So It's a great, gracious greeting. Verse seven. Now I hear that it's sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we didn't mistreat them. The whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, they'll tell you. Therefore, David says, be favorable toward my men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. And so, so, so nothing in David's request here is out of line. His, his tone is humble. He's very gracious again, uh, approaches Nabal respectfully. He's not demanding anything. He's not entitled here. He doesn't step over any cultural boundaries by asking what he asks. It would have, been, would have been very common for Nabal to expect a sort of request like this from someone who'd been his informal security detail. So, so nothing is out of line here. But look at how Nabal responds to David's request I bet Nabal has this sneer on his face and we know that his tone is demeaning when he says what he says in verses 10 and 11. Nabal answers David's servants, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? So just imagine how belittling that would have been. This is the guy that's been saving your flocks, Nabal, for the last however long. And then Nabal says, many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Now, Nabal here is referring to David breaking away from Saul. He's just calling David a servant, a rebellious servant. Again, just belittling is what Nabal is doing here. And then look at the self-centeredness in verse 11. Why should I take my bread and, sh- and water, the meat I have slaughtered for my shears, and give it to men from, coming from, from who knows where? You see, Nabal doesn't just deny David's request. I mean, he could have. It was within his rights. is his stuff. He doesn't just deny the request, though. Nabal's response is full of ego, and it is full of insult toward David. And, and when David hears this, his response is immediate. You see, David is hungry. He's trying to provide for his men. And, and, now, and now he's just been insulted by someone he's been helping, helping serve. He's been helping out for the last however long. And so, so Nabal, or excuse me, David jumps right into, into retaliation. This that we're about to see here, this is what hangry looks like in David. Verse 13, David says to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped his sword on as well. About 400 men went with David. So first time he sends 10, now we send in 400. He sends two-thirds of his army. He says 200 to stay back with the supplies. David says, Nabal, I'm about to show you who's boss. I'm about to show you there's more than just 10 men here with me. And so David comes down with this force against Nabal. As we're reading this, we're thinking there's about to be a fight. As we read this, we think there's going to be a collision. But then Abigail steps in. A servant runs to her. A servant tells Abigail everything that's happened. Tells her about how David's been helping out their flocks. About, about his request of Nabal and, and Nabal's insulting response. And the servant knows what's coming. In verse 17, this, the servant says, disaster is hanging over our master, but not just him. Disaster, it says, is hanging over our whole household. And then in the midst of this crisis, Abigail doesn't run away. Abigail leans in. In the midst of this crisis, right when we're expecting to see this collision between David and Nabal, Abigail's character and her leadership shine. Ladies, if you're looking for female leaders in the Bible... Any of us, if we're looking for female leaders in the Bible, make sure that you include Abigail in your list. I'll summarize what happens next. Abigail wastes no time, and she jumps jumps right into action very decisively. She gathers some of the food that would have already have been prepared for the the sheep shearing party, and she sends that food ahead to David and his men. And then in, in this tremendous display... Of initiative, but also of courage. Abigail goes to David herself. David, this man bent on destroying Nabal, she goes as Nabal's wife to intercede on behalf of Nabal's household. I mean, mean, just think how risky this would have been for her. Here's David and, and 400 men behind him. I mean, this scene from Braveheart is pretty close to real life what it probably would have looked like. Hundreds of men behind this leader coming down, swords ready, ready for battle, right? But then suddenly they stopped. And the guys in the back probably kind of run into the guys in front of them because they don't see what's going on. But suddenly, 400 men are stopped in their tracks. They have to. Because Abigail has put herself between David and his target. That's courage, isn't it? And then Abigail adds wisdom and insight to the qualities we're learning about her in this chapter, she opens her mouth and delivers the speech that is full of grace and wisdom and truth. The whole thing is worth reading, so let me read the, the whole chunk of it. Verses 20, I'll start in verse 23, go down through uh, verse 31 or so, I think is where it ends. So, 1 Samuel 25, here's what Abigail says. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey, bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Pardon your servant, my lord. Let me speak to you. Hear hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my lord, to that wicked man Nabal. He's just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. And so so Abigail has no illusions about who her husband is. She's not codependent, she's not enabling him. She knows exactly who he is, what she's dealing with, but what she's doing here is she's protecting her household. As for me, she continues, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent, and now my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. Let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord, here she's pointing to all the provisions she sent ahead of her to him, let these, let these gifts be given to the men who follow you. Verse 28, please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. So so Abigail is basically acting like a prophetess here. She is speaking truth into David's life. She's calling him up to a higher standard. She's giving him a vision of God's view of his life. And then she continues, verse 29. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies, he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord is fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. Abigail's speech, her intercession, is a clinic on diffusing conflict. Well, let's make sure we just appreciate a few things pull them out that she said there. You see, her posture is humble, and her tone is gracious and gentle. Abigail factors God into the picture in a way that David hadn't yet. You see, up to this point in David's life, in, in numerous big decisions, First Samuel has said, David intentionally consulted the Lord. It's just something we've grown to expect. Of David. And so it, it is noticeable that David does nothing like that here in this situation with, Day, with, with Nabal. David has kind of forgotten about God. He's so blinded by his rage that he's just going to do whatever he wants to do until Abigail steps in. And you can count it seven times in her speech, she mentions the name of Yahweh. She mentions the name of the Lord, calling David's perspective up to factor God into the picture. She shares truth about the, about the plans God has for David, about the man God wants him to be. She calls David up to be that kind of man. See, she doesn't belittle him or demean him. She doesn't say, what an idiot, David. What are you thinking? You know, this isn't good. Instead, she gives him a better vision of who God wants him to be and calls him up to that. Abigail gets David to slow down, zoom out, and factor in God. And this speech is absolutely the pivot point in the chapter. How do we know that? Because David changes. He changes course. He listens to Abigail. I mean, this is, this is big when you think about it. David isn't so blinded by his rage that he's deaf to input. David doesn't have his fist clenched so tightly around his sword that nothing will release it. Instead, David opens his hand and he receives what Abigail says. He receives her correction. He receives her wisdom. He receives her truth. And David does a U-turn. Verse 32, David says to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment, for keeping me from bloodshed this day, and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, listen to this. If you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. That's how hot David was. This wasn't just against Nabal. He was going to go wipe out Nabal's entire household. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. What a change. From revenge and retaliation, now to wishing Abigail and her household peace. I've heard your words and granted your request. And then just to finish out the story, Abigail goes home. And and the next morning, she tells Nabal everything that had happened. Because Nabal, the fool that he is, is completely oblivious to the events swirling around him. So Abigail tells tells Nabal everything that had happened, how how many men David were bringing, how narrowly Nabal and his household had escaped. And and then the Bible says, when, when Nabal heard this, his heart failed him. People think he had a stroke or a heart attack. And then 10 days later, Nabal dies. Eventually David asks Abigail to be his wife. She left a good impression on him, and she does. But I want but, to focus our attention here on David. What we're talking about cha- is change this morning. I want us to see that, that what we've seen today in this, in this chapter is that David is teachable. God is using David's time in this wilderness when he's on the run from Saul in so many key ways. Last week we saw for, for, from Jeff how God is teaching David restraint, a good thing for a king to have. David is in this cave with Saul. David has the chance to take Saul's life, but, but but David restrains himself from doing that. And then today we see David show teachability. He doesn't just act on his impulses and do whatever he's gonna do, whatever he's gonna do no matter what anyone else says. David shows that, that, that he can receive correction. David shows us that he's teachable. So now let's go all the way back to the questions we asked at the beginning of our time together this morning. So so how does David change? We've seen the answers, truth and teachability. When David comes face to face with truth, he's teachable. And so, so what about for us? How can we change? How can I change? How can you change? How can we grow into being men and women College students, teenagers, kids, all of us, how can we grow into being a church that when there's something in us, individually, that needs to change, we lean into that rather than resisting it or denying it? We know the answer is the same for us as it it was for David, truth and teachability. So let's take our last few minutes and just, just ask two key questions that flow right out of what we've seen in 1 Samuel 25 that will help us get very practical, driving this home, drilling this into us. First question, how am I getting face-to-face with truth? You see, just like Abigail put herself in David's way, we need to allow truth to get in front of us so we can receive it, so truth can have its say. Very few people, I don't know if I know anyone who does this naturally, we all want to go our own way and we all want to be left completely unchallenged as we do that. We, we, will, we want to be left in this echo chamber, surrounded by people who are just going to tell us exactly what we want to hear instead of challenging us with truth. And so That means we need to be intentional. We need to go out of our way to seek truth tellers in our life, to seek truth in our life. One thing this means is that, is that we surround ourselves with, with people like Abigail, with men and women like Abigail who show the same, the same gentle, humble posture and tone that she showed David, but that have the same courage to say what needs to be said when it needs to be said. We need to be people like that ourselves, speaking that into others. But I think the tougher thing is to, is to invite that sort of truth from others into our lives. So we need people who will speak truth into us and it means we need to keep coming back again and again over the course of our lifetimes to this book, to the Bible because at Brookside we believe this book is true. And so that's why we want to spend ourselves to, to keep telling you to read it and studying it so that we can understand his message and get face-to-face with truth because every day we have the opportunity to come face-to-face with God through this book, this God whose word is true, and then to keep coming back to that again and again and again. Earlier this week, I was at the, the, the funeral for the mom of a, of a good friend in his family, and, and this woman lived a long life well. She, she loved Jesus. She, she loved her family. And so, so it was fun for this, for this service to really become a celebration. And the family was certainly sad. But as they celebrated the legacy that, that my friend's mom is leaving behind. And, and as, as part of that service, the family got up to share, to share just some personal memories of their mom. And so as part of that, my friend got up. And he holds up his mom's Bible. She, she was 90 years old. So, so you can see how well-worn it is. You, you can see it's, it's binding, us held together with this duct tape. You can see how, how frayed, if you can see this, how frayed the pages are. So, so my friend, with, with everybody there, got up, held up his mom's Bible, 90-year-old mom's Bible, and said, this is the way a Bible is supposed to look. You see, even at 90 years old, after a lifetime of following Jesus, with all the ups and downs that are part of that, even at 90 years old, this godly woman was getting face to face with truth, reading it, studying it, so that she could know her Lord and live before him faithfully. What a picture of getting face to face with truth. So how about you? How are you getting face to face With truth. Second question. Am I teachable? Am I teachable? And and this is really the right next question to ask. Because after we get face to face with truth, we have to decide what we're going to do with that once we have it in front of us. We're going to deny it. We're going to make excuses. We're going to ignore it. Or will we lean into it and change when we need to change? I love how Proverbs 15 drives this value of teachability home to us. Proverbs 15, verses 31 and 32 says, Whoever heeds life-giving correction, whoever is teachable, will be at home among the wise. But those who disregard discipline, those who aren't, who aren't teachable, despise themselves But the one who heeds correction gains understanding. That's who I want to be as a dad, as a husband, as a man. That's who we want to be, isn't it? We want to lean in, but it means that we have to be teachable. And if you really want to put teeth on this question, am I teachable? Ask it this way. When's the last time you said out loud, I was wrong? When's the last time you said you were wrong? To, to a, a roommate, or a coach, or, or a boss, or a friend? Parents, how are you modeling this with your kids? When's the last time you said, you said you were wrong to one of your children living at home, or to one of your adult children, for that matter? Kids, when's the last time you said you were wrong to your parents? Your allowance will go up like ten times if you do that. You know, when's the last time you said you were wrong? To, to a brother or sister or to a friend, when's the last time you said, I was wrong? I mean, just think about David in 1 Samuel 25. Here's this leader, this strong leader who, who's on the rise towards the, towards the kingship of Israel, right? Here's this strong leader backed by 400 soldiers, so manly men. But after, after Abigail comes and says, hey David, make sure you listen to me on this before you keep going towards Nabal. After Abigail comes and speaks to David, David has to turn around to these 400 manly men, faces painted, swords clanging, whatever it is, men, and say, hey guys, we gotta turn around. Guys, we're going back home. David has to tell these men, guys, guys, I was wrong. I don't think that was easy for him. But he did it. He showed that he's teachable. And when he did that, he took a big step towards becoming the king God would want him to be. God could use. Towards being the man, the person God wants him to be that God could use. You see, in the same way, for all of us, change isn't easy. But there are plenty of times when change is right, when when, when our character needs to change, when our trajectories need to change to honor God and to be the sort of person that God wants us to be as we find and follow Jesus together and makes us the people God wants us to be and that God delights to use. So David had to change his posture towards one of just having this clenched fist, towards this posture of just open hands, receiving what Abigail spoke into him. And as he did it, David just continued this trajectory towards being, a, a, towards, towards being the man after God's own heart that he was. What about us, Brookside? Are we teachable? These things we're learning from David's life are so essential as we help people find and follow Jesus. So Brooks, let's just come back to those last two questions one more time. We don't want to lose these. How are we getting face-to-face with truth? And then are we teachable? By God's grace, may he do that work in our lives and in this place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we, we thank you that you are a good God that is so patient with us when there are things about us that need to change how how graciously you call us to that so father thank you for that but father we 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 pray at the same time for the humility for us individually and for us as a church god whenever there's whenever there's a course correction we need to make father by your grace giving us the courage the humility to do it continue to help us do either those small course corrections in our individual lives or those big ones and so, Father, we, we ask you for that sort of grace, and, and even now we open our hands and say, make us teachable. We'll be teachable. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.